this book would have been better titled How I Learned to Hate Class and Love Derrida. <laughs> Today is Will, Owen, and Gil. Welcome, guys. Hey. Hey. Hello. So we have a very special treat for you all today. We're going to be discussing a book called Hegemony and Socialist Strategy by Ernesto Leclau and Chantal Mouffe. Now, if you don't know about this book, I'll just say that implicitly or explicitly, every post-1990s leftist fad has accepted the basic premises that are set forward in this book. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really sure that the authors intended it to have the kind of effect that it did, but um, here's where we are. It's the landmark text of post-Marxism, which was a sort of declaration by the postmodern left that we needed to leave class analysis and you know, interests behind as ways of thinking about politics. So um, do you guys remember when uh, Cardi B threw that shoe at Nicki Minaj? <laughs> I, wait, <laughs> How wait I this is where we're started? Oh my yeah. God, oh. thank you. Do you guys yes. remember? Why not? Yes. Okay. Like, and did you guys... Did you guys know about Queen Radio when Nicki Minaj is like on Queen Radio afterward addressing what had went on? No. No, no. tell me about, tell us about yeah. it. Tell okay, us. so she's got her own podcast. So like, I... F- what I feel like is going on right now is that LeClau and Mouffe are like Cardi B and I'm Nicki Minaj. <laughs> so what Nicki Minaj said before, she was like on her radio show and she goes, okay, people, she got really quiet and she's like, we're going to get into some things, you know? <laughs> she's like, I'm going to address all this stuff. So that's basically what we're going to, what we're doing. That's today. what we're going to do today. Um, oh, we're the Menagians. Okay, this is this is. Do you like how I made a, how I left. made? I don't want to. I don't want to alienate our audience, but I just made this like a Barb philosophy podcast. No, that will um, only yeah. alienate the wrong people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, don't need, we don't need that. In fact, okay. we were hoping to alienate them. Yeah, we're I trying. Do. We're trying to constitute a hegemonic Bach over here. Mm-hmm. Right. I do kind of like Cardi though. Uh, so I brought you guys into the the Barb <laughs> universe to. to win the cultural war. As you know. All right, here for it. So the 1980s were a moment, I think, when uh, academics were feeling like footloose and fancy free about the economy. And so we have Leclau and Move to thank for making things like the economy and distributive justice and um, like the economic becomes sort of dirty words, so we can we can thank them for that. Like the, in the text, the economic is always like italicized, like it's like an insult. So or put in or put in like air quotes, right? Yeah, or put in air quotes, um, <laughs> which is an in- interesting way of critiquing political economy. But anyway, <laughs> I think that the thing that I'm going to do first of all, and then I'll just, you know, throw it to you guys is I'll just say two things I think they're probably right about so that we can assess with those things out of the way. I think that they're probably right 
in their criticisms of Altisera. So if listeners were, you know, in on the first episode, we made some, you know, we had some discussion about the Altisera's way of thinking about ideology and whether or not he's successful in kind of overcoming functionalism. And I think they basically pick up on Altisera's shortcomings and really like run with them. So basically, Altisera isn't very successful in describing structurally bounded agency, like how people are constrained and act in ways that are culturally and normatively interesting um, within the economy. And so he has like weird ways of describing economic determination, like the last instance or overdetermination. And this is an awkward way of putting things. And I think that they exploit these weaknesses and, and some of that is fair. I also think that there's a legitimate critique of technological determinism in the Marxian tradition, like the idea that the that the there's a kind of an economic base that has an inevitable historical movement. There are people who thought like this, and it's worth criticizing. Um, but having said that, I think the overall argument, I'll just put that out there for listeners if they haven't read the book and just ask you what you think about it, is that Marxism is essentialist, it's reductionist, and low-key fascist because it thinks about the social realm as a homogenous totality and it can't conceptualize political contingency and agency. And Marxism basically crumbles under the weight of new social movements and demands for equality that aren't just economic in nature. The working class doesn't even exist. And they even suggest that, in fact, the working class is like the fundamental obstacle for expanding democracy democracy like the idea of the working class is an <laughs> obstacle for socialist politics um so yeah what were what were all of y'all's impression yeah i like starting with the things that we agree with or that we can find common cause with uh because i think all four of us truly dislike where this book leads um it, uh, i know i, I gotta say say gail this this was hard this was hard <laughs> to get through absolutely it was a was. slog <laughs> But I do think that, so yeah, the, the, the first chapter and some of the second chapter, the book's got four, um, I think has some genuinely worthwhile criticisms of early 20th century Marxist theory. And the problem that they identify is that on like a kind of classical or orthodox Marxist understanding, the idea is that the proletariat or the working class will become increasingly unified with the development of capitalism. But instead, what we see instead is a sort of increasing fragmentation of the working class. And then there's a sort of, this is what they refer to as like the crisis of Marxism. And this can be responded to in a couple of different ways. And what they try to trace in the first chapter with uh, their readings of like uh, Kautsky and Bernstein, um, and even like you know Gramsci in some ways Lenin. Uh, is and Lenin totally is that like in each case what we end up with is a sort of disarticulation of economics and politics and a sort of increasing autonomy of the political as they put it and so what ends up needing to happen then is saying something like okay yes the working class is not unified it's increasingly fragmented. And then what needs to happen is a sort of political unification or some sort of political movement to unify them. And their argument is when that happens, though, 
all of these Marxist theorists claim that the unity that's thereby secured has an economic or class character, and their their argument is that it doesn't necessarily have to have that. And so, like, there's a sort of uh, essentialism, like you said, uh, and the two sort of basic problems that they see with all of these theories is, on the one hand, uh, sort of a priori given an essential or immutable unity or identity of the working class or the subject of politics, which they think is illegitimate. And then there's this other problem, which is the sort of teleological conception of the inevitability of socialism or whatever. So uh, that that all sounds right, broadly speaking. I think that the, a lot of that tracks as far as I'm mm -hmm. concerned. Um, mm -hmm. I do have issues, though, um, with the conclusion that they draw from this, which is that I don't know, they jettison class almost entirely as something that can provide a sort of fundamental point of reference or framework for making sense of political struggles. And then there's other issues that we can get into later about like, yeah, like I said, where they lead, I think is problematic. Yeah, or to put that differently, they, they look at all of those attempts to try to kind of, you know, bridge the chasm that's been created in the crisis of Marxism. You know, the general strike might be one way, because they bring up Rosa Luxemburg, right? The general strike might be one way to unify the working class, right. or they look at the kind of Leninist model of a party vanguard uh, that becomes politically authoritarian in order to compensate for the lack of cohesive unity on the economic side. Um, and they, 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 you know, they run through George Sorrell as well, the idea of the, you know, forming a block or something. And so they run through, and it's actually a I think, and actually, you know, the part of the book I like the most, which is really not, I guess, not saying that much, but the part of the book I like the most is, <laughs> is I, I like that rundown of that, you know, the typology of the various attempts to deal with this chasm that emerges between right. the economic and the political. Yeah. The mm -hmm. weird thing to me, though, is that they don't, like, I almost don't know why they include that in this book, because they don't then go on to say, okay, here's how, here's another way we're going to try to, like, you know, frame unity, Instead, what they do is they is they just seem to say, you know what, we're going to just lean into the fragmentation. Like, like fuck it. There's no, you know, there, there's no way to build, you know, this. It, it seems it feels to me like there's no way to build any kind of large, you know, solidarity across social groups or segments of society. And so they just decide, as good post-structuralists, to like lean into differentiation and dislocation mm -hmm. and yeah, it's it feels like a trick that the book has the phrase socialist strategy in its title why like where where is strategy in any of where we land so they end up saying things that like you know they're working trying to rework Gramsci's concepts of like hegemony um and you know picking up on some Althusserian concepts like overdetermination and their claim is something like there's this the the social uh is this like field of differences and it's very again very post-structuralist sort of you know, coming out of like Saussure and whatever, where like this, like every everything is this sort of like play of like differential signifiers, and hegemony is this practice of articulating them into a sort of like uh, provisional totality, but with the understanding that it's never a closed one, it's never a final totality, and it has no, there is no ultimate essence or anything like this, and so mm -hmm. I I don't know. Why? Why socialist? As I, maybe yeah. one like stupid mm -hmm. question to ask question. about this book is like I actually don't see any analysis in anything that they write in two hundred pages about like why capitalism is bad and why mm -hmm. socialism would be good. Why not? I don't know. Yeah. Why not democratic strategy or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've also got like a real fetish for democracy that I'm sort of uncomfortable with. But you're not Honestly. a pluralist. 
Oh, boy. Oh, no, the Platonism's about to come out, I worry. <laughs> I just feel like I'm, if we got, listen, just a couple philosopher like, kings in charge. <laughs> just just a couple. Just a few. I actually kind of thought, like, you know, this book would have been better titled How I Learned to Hate Class and Love Derrida. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it, is, it, is, it is wild that, you know, now that we've gone through the things that, that we like, and of course, you know, um, listeners, you know, you were here for a Stuart Hall episode, the idea that in the political, you know, political reality in the political realm, there's multiple determinations. It's not simply monocausal, the idea of, the economic base and superstructures. Mm. I'm here with that, but I just don't know what is with the, what feels like the ceaseless return to Derrida of reduce of linguistifying the social realm of you know, mm -hmm. saying, well, you know, there seems to be a hiatus between you know, the signifier and the signifier. So, what does the worker even you know refer to? You know, there there isn't an <laughs> essence there. There's only a play of differences, and it seemed to me that this is like you know almost like taking someone like Derrida on deconstruction so literally and mm -hmm. making it act as if you know when we're doing politics what we're doing is talking about these essential identities and then finding out oh no there's just a play of multiplicity at the bottom i don't i didn't understand the political reality are no that they were trying to yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it feels like you eventually get there. And I'm thinking, yeah. do they, are they talking about class as if it's only an identity rather yes. than an impersonal process? Because I think this yeah. gets to what Gil is saying. It's just, you know, in remarkably, in some ways, it feels like capitalism does drop off as a, a series of concrete practices about mm -hmm. people's mm -hmm. relationship to produce and reproduce themselves and their needs. It mm -hmm. becomes a lot about, well, if you've, if you imagine there's this unified subject, there are these other sorts of struggles that 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 happen that you're not going to realize. But I, what what are those struggles responding to? Why are they happening? And instead, we're talking about how it turns out there is no essential subject. Which, cool, great, right? I, I yeah. Mean, I think I the crazy thing about this is that by the end of the book, it just like descends into complete banality, like. <laughs> <laughs> one se like on page 178 not that that matters i'll just read you a couple sentences they could have been written by Please. anybody post like 1960 the process character of every radical transformation the revolutionary act is simply an internal moment of this process there are oh not God. for example necessary links between anti-sexism and anti-capitalism and a unity oh between the two can be the result of a can only be the result of a hegemonic articulation but socialism is one component of a project for radical democracy not vice versa from the point of view of hegemonic politics then the crucial limitation of the traditional left perspective is that it attempts to determine a priori agents of change like this there's a way in which on the one hand this could be written by any like liberal attack on the left in terms of you know yeah that there's no particular agent, like, you know, we might as well, just pluralism, you know, different interest groups mm -hmm. vying for influence in the state, or it could be like any new left criti criticism of the labor movement, like, okay, so there's not a necessary relationship between this and feminism. And it's like, did we need this book in 1985 to spend <laughs> two, 190 pages to get to this point where you tell me what, what I already know? I mean, it's, that part's really mm -hmm. weird. And so I do take the point near the, the end of the book, you know, uh, 
one of the few things I, I liked in that last chapter, the one thing I, I, I liked is this idea, though it seems like the one time they do talk about strategy is that, you know, the left needs to start talking about, you know, concretely, you know, um, issues of, of rights and all of that. They need to start talking about what is your concept of freedom, because the problem is that the right is very good at taking those cultural mm -hmm. issues and molding it and making their own hegemony. And so I take that point and I and I and I get it but what I felt was missing for this is so what is this all driving towards though you know so what what type of you know um a vision of society are Leclau and Mouffe looking for because they emphasize contingency so much so no, visions of society are teleological and teleology is only one step away from totalitarianism will <laughs> well I I guess you dunked on me. I and you know now I've no, been revealed them. to be a totalitarian and well you but know, this is actually part of the problem. No, but, no, but this is like a genuine issue though, right? Because right. like the the sort of terminus of this critical pro and they refer to it as a deconstruction, right? They're mm -hmm. situating themselves as like doing a and deconstruction. They call as somebody doing deconstruction, and yeah, that's just, but he couldn't go far enough. Right? Like, he he still course. had like that class. We have to make our time. intervention. Yeah, he still yeah, yeah. believed in the metaphysics of presence. Damn it, he still believed people needed to eat, which is wild. <laughs> well, I mean, I tweeted that's this depressing. the other day, but it, I actually think that it's like actually like the thesis of the book, which is that like uh, the working class does not exist outside of its discursive articulation. So yeah. let's just let's just argue interminably about what, fr what like freedom means mm -hmm. it's cool mm -hmm. and i just uh, i've no it's linguistic because, idealism like, right that's their that's their post-structuralism yeah and so like the thing is is that like they're like they're charged that we can't have a preconceived notion of the identity or unity of the working class means that they reject as uh illegitimate any appeal to the interests of the working class. Mm -hmm. They say that like whenever you do that, you're making this weird, illegitimate metaphysical posit. And if that's true, I don't know, again, why, why we would call this socialist as a critique. I don't know what it means to have like a socialist program or non-program, if we're being very careful, uh, that doesn't have any relation to the interest of working people or, or, or doesn't have a class core right which is, the also saying which is different interests, than saying reduced to yeah. class right yeah they're, they think that like talking about interests is like basically fascist i mean that's mm -hmm. like the, they keep saying that over and over again like any discussion of interest that isn't just an art, a discursive articulation and i just had this thought that like it sounds like a faculty meeting more than a, more than like socialist <laughs> politics, totally. you know, like if you're a philosopher <laughs> and you're you're in a pluralist philosophy department, you know, you have different people doing different things, different periods of history and you want to get a hire. You know, you want somebody to be hired in a certain area. You kind of like coalesce with your block and you find reasons mm -hmm. to convince every other people, every uh, everyone else in the department, even if it isn't exactly like you're not might not be honest about exactly what you want but you kind of create a, a dominant rationale to get other people mm -hmm. to accept what you want but it's never really linked to like a rational argument that those people might actually accept at face value mm -hmm. it always has to be like we're going to position ourselves to like influence the department mm -hmm. that's how i think they basically think about socialist politics and i'm like that could <laughs> <laughs> that's probably not where you want your leftist tract to be no. Well, this is actually, yeah, you mentioned Sorel, and, like, that's, like, the most, like, pernicious thing that 
happens in in that part of the book and like that part of the influence for them is like Sorel like goes in this direction where he's like, well, the only thing that can uh, provide a principle for unifying these fragmented or disparate sort of people is a myth. Mm -hmm. And so like mm -hmm. then we're totally unmoored from anything like, uh, I don't know, practical, concrete material reality. I'm sorry. Like they say things like, yeah, when we say everything is like discursively produced and there's only like effects of discourse, we are not. Uh, you know, just idealists, and we're not just like you know falling prey to like the one side of the idealism realism debate. But I, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't see it. I, I think that that's not the case. I think that they absolutely fall prey to that, and 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 like I said, pernicious to to say. At some point, I, I flagged it up, and I, I wonder if I can find it. They the one time they actually talk about like Marxist concepts specifically is like in like a two or three page critique of the idea of labor power. And it's ridiculous. They're like yeah. Marxism has to establish a fiction that is that labor power is a commodity, and I'm like, that's not just a fiction. I'm sorry, I don't okay. know how you can maintain that. Can I read you a, something else? This will be the, my last paragraphs I read, but I highlighted all of this the first time I read this book, and every time I come back, I get like more into it. I circle like more things. So there's this part of the book where they decide that their intervention is going to be to tell Marxists that they don't understand agency at the point of production. Listen to this. So they say, we can see, therefore, that both elements of the economist viewpoint, obviously Marxism, labor power as a commodity, and the development of the productive forces as a neutral process, so the idea of technological determinism, that the forces of production just develop and then people adapt to those to create new social forms, these reinforce each other. Little wonder that the study of the labor process was for long so long depreciated within the Marxist tradition. But that's not all, guys. It was the publication of Harry Braverman's Labor and Monopoly Capital, which finally triggered off the debate. Braverman postulates that it is the law of capital accumulation which lies behind the need of capital to wrest control of the labor process from the direct producer... But he, however, fails to provide a real explanation why this is expressed through an unceasing effort to destroy the skills of the workers, what's called de-skilling, and to reduce them to mere performers. Above all, he prevents this logic of domination as an omnipotent force operating apparently without trammels, as if the economic forces available to capital did not permit the working class to resist and influence the course of development. Here, the old notion of labor power as commodity entirely subject to the logic of capital continues to produce its effects. I thought that was worth reading in full because that is the exact opposite point of that book. That book, <laughs> like literally this is the clearest oh part of that second chapter and it is the most upside down, like it's the most lucid set of sentences and it's the most upside down thing that they say. The whole point of Harry Braverman's book is to show that it is conflict at the point of production. The constant wrestling of workers with maintaining control over the conditions of their works, work and the fact that capital has to continually problem solve to try to regain control over work mm. because workers do resist. They try to slow things down. They try to monopolize skills. They try to like do things that make production less efficient. But what you buy from workers isn't a, a quantity of labor. You buy a capacity within a certain period of time. So capitalists have to get as much out of them as possible. And so there is an inherently con 
conflictual process at the point of production, which is what drives mechanization and technological innovation because they have to compete with other capitals that they know are doing the same thing. So it's class conflict at the point of production that drives innovation, not technological determinism. That is the whole intervention that that book makes, and it's wild that they get the opposite reading, and that makes them go, oh my God, Braverman, like they couldn't solve the problem. So bizarre. It's also just like that's in Capital Volume One. Like I don't working day. understand. Yeah, it is, that there is like this, like they make it sound as though like the Marxist conception is one in which capitalism develops according to its own uniform logic without ever having any resistance from workers. I don't see that in any of Marx's texts. He's talking the entire time about how there's this interplay, and so they like make it sound as though they write as though. Uh, Oh, this is going to mess up the whole Marxist conception once we realize that like workers also affect things. And it's like, that was kind of the entire point. I don't understand. It was certainly the point of Braverman's book. And I got very animated about that because it was like a very decisive intervention. And to see their interpretation of it was so upside down. Well, they get a lot of people upside down. Their reading of Gramsci is extremely frustrating. Yeah, the only part, the only time their reading of Gramsci is good is whenever they're about to say something that they actually disagree with Gramsci about. Finally, you know, that's where that's where things get hot. And I'm like, okay, finally, they're saying intelligent. You know, they'll be like, oh, so Gramsci says this, right? That at the end of the day, like there has to be a kind of binary confrontation between two camps or something. And like, but that's obviously crazy. And I'm like, oh no, okay, cool. We actually got a little bit of truth here for a minute. <laughs> oh, <goodness. laughs> so. I guess I have two questions. So what what does this book accomplish at the end of the day? So I'm trying to understand, uh, you know, going back to Lillian, your your uh, metaphor example of like being in a faculty meeting where you don't always want to give your reasons for what you're doing, but you're trying to form a block. You know, so why do people organize on this account and all that so what resources do leclau and move give us to understand so what are people fighting for why would they they get together how would they come to understand each other because there's this constant you know reference to you know um the the meaning of, of the signifiers constantly shifting it's not fixed forever and so i get how that works at the level of language but if i'm trying to understand why people get together and do things i don't see how they offer an account for that or what it would mean to for people to organize and say this is this is what we want and this is who we are which usually happens when people organize so i don't even understand why anyone is struggling at all unless struggle just happens and all of that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well there is i think a sort of weird like and this is why i think part of like the sort of uh uh Foucauldian inheritance that they've got which is that they sort of it seems as though resistance is like an automatic feature struggle is like an automatic feature of the operation of power in the first place and so like i don't i i just think that that's like a ridiculous conception it's one of the things about foucault that i like the least in which i think that they adopt right that like once there is the exercise of power well there's also there's also always already the surplus or excess such that like there's there's like automatically resistance to these hegemonic forms of like domination or relations of power and I'm like, I, I, if that's true, it's tautological. I think that a lot of right. like the thing, like that, like a lot of the time, like I, I, I think I've, I follow their argument and I'm like, the only thing that you're asking me to do is to re-describe what's going on, mm -hmm. that nothing would actually change if, you know, like you, like you're saying, well, like uh, people get together and they make a concrete demand for something. Maybe it's, I don't know, a limit to the working day 
or for healthcare or something. And they show up and they go, well, all right, if by that you mean that that's what this essentially is all about, then you're an authoritarian. But if you recognize that it's contingent, then it's just a cool discursive articulation, baby, and we're all good. And I'm like, I don't know yeah, it, what the it, material difference it is. It seems like they're saying at the end that there are, you know, a set of struggles out there. They bring up the example of like ecological struggles, like um, urban struggles. They refer to, which I'm not really sure what they what they mean by, but they they talk about the emergence <laughs> of new. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So they, someone uh, had to say it, and then it <laughs> seems like I mean I just I just get the feeling that they're they're telling you okay okay we got these new struggles coming about new social movements please don't subsume them under class categories like th that just seems to be I don't understand <laughs> what, what other than that seems to be the the thing that, the message they leave you with you know you, well yeah because they're socialists <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean they do say at the end that like capital is like it's absolutely necessary to alter the relations of production or something like that at the very end of the book. And I just thought to myself, like, why? Well, this is actually one of the funny things, right? Like, it's they're, they're sort of falling on their own sword. This is the critique that they make of all the early 20th century Marxists, right? That, like, political struggle is reinterpreted in terms of a class conflict. And they're like, there's no necessary connection for that to have been the case, right? And then at the end of the book, they're like, anyway, so we got to do something about capitalism and i'm like uh, i don't know why why i thought your whole thing was that there's no necessary connection there and yet all of a sudden mm -hmm. like it's unclear the other version of this that i was thinking Can about I, too is, oh, okay. i'm sorry go ahead no go i was ahead. just gonna ask you you know before you leave that point you know okay so i can accept you know the idea that there's no necessary connection but you know they want to say that there's a you know there's a connection in, in this particular conjunction, this particular articulation. What is the difference between contingency and this being just ad hocism for a theory? Mm. Just like, you know, what is the, you know, what is the difference between, okay, you know, you know, we have to always know that new things might arise and it just being like, well, you know, I guess capitalism still is a problem. So I guess we can, we just should make that the central site of struggle. Like, so what would, what allows us to hang together through different changes in context is what I, what I am asking. And, and two, even with contingency. So why, why did these different struggles emerge then? Why did the quote-unquote urban struggle emerge, the ecological mm -hmm. struggle emerge? Um, I don't think it's sufficient to say they emerge because, you know, resistance happens because, you know, power happens. And we already <laughs> told you resistance happens when power happens. Yeah, and, like, and, the, and the further question of how do you build any commonality between or any kind of solidarity between those various different, you know, struggles so that you don't end up with a kind of archipelago. How do you build that that? that commonality without indexing them to capitalism. Yeah, yeah I, I don't, mean, I I don't know. Right? I don't think Isn't it works. The question? Sorry to answer your question with a question, but. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, like, it's the sort of, I guess, like, I don't know. I suppose that, like, I can take the point when they say something like, yeah, the, e ecological uh, struggle, like pro-environmental, uh, environmentalism, they say, like, it, it could be anti-capitalist, but it could also be reactionary. Or it could be libertarian. And I'm like, I guess that's true. But, like, you have yeah. a preference. Mm -hmm. You have right. a preference. And your preference is that the environmental struggle be an anti-capitalist one. And why? And I don't think in the terms of their own argument, they can actually provide a satisfying account for why that ought to be the case. And so what we end up mm -hmm. with is something like totally, like you said, ad hocism, just a completely tactical, not strategic, tactical alliance mm -hmm. between various like 
fundamentally disarticulated struggles that are only ever sort of partial and detotalized, which we have to say so as not to be authoritarians. But I, I, don't, I don't know how these are supposed to actually be articulated, which is their favorite concept. Exactly, yeah. I mean, the crazy thing about it is that you simply have to ma- be able to make arguments to people and like for why you think what you're doing is right. And you can't always be creating caveats and being like, oh, but I'm actually might be wrong about that. Like you, you've obviously never been to a political meeting or tried to have a discussion about people who already aren't won over to what you're saying. Like if you think that discourse, this discursive articulation it's just something that they think, I think they think in terms of it could just be spontaneous. You know, we're all just going to like bump off of each other in language for long enough and what's going to shake out our different struggles. And I think they seem rather optimistic about the state of the world. If that's what you think it is the case, it means that you mm-hmm. think the like in Europe, you think the class conflict problem has been solved and you think that enough social progress has been made in other ways. And so you actually kind of feel this ascending progressive social order. And therefore, it's not so necessary to make arguments because you assume that this is going to continue. But like in 2020, we know that's not true. And it's also the case that we seem to have to make arguments for redistribution. And we can't simply be making arguments like, well, maybe... Like, we're wrong about wanting to redistribute wealth. Like, I just, I admit that's just subjective. It's just a partial reading on the situation. It, it's absurd. It's a discursive effect. It's just weird. a local practice. You know, so you <laughs> have and again, to... And again, the, it's ironic because that's their yeah. also, their other critique of the Marxist tradition is that it's got this teleological conception of history. And yet, as you're saying, Lillian, like, they end up, like, kind of presupposing this sort of quiet, progressive movement, right? This sort of, I don't know... Uh, yeah, that, it, that it's moving in the right direction, that these antagonisms are being neutralized. In being some way. totally uninterested mm-hmm. in the material conditions in which you live creates a situation in which you have to reinvent the wheel once you've made all of your critiques of what existed before. So the reason, aside from ideological interests, that Marxists are easy to criticize for the majority of the academy is that they actually try to say something about the nature of reality. And just like being the only person in the room that says what you believe, as opposed Mm -hmm. to hypothetically, one could say, you know, like you're in a philosophy conference and you're like, well, one could say the argument would go something like this or whatever. If you actually just say, well, I think this is wrong or I think this is right. Then it's like the piranhas come around. They're like, Mm -hmm. you know, we can attack this. So Marxists have a social theory as we've discussed in other episodes and it's actually one of the only social theories so you can kind of eat it and try to corrode it and you can do all these things to it um but if you don't try to have your own social theory then at the end of the day you're going to recreate the problems that exist in actually thinking concretely about the world so this idea of teleology comes back the idea that they criticize the economism, but the whole time, like the underbelly of this whole argument is assuming that the economic and political are um, different things. So this is actually a structural feature of capitalism, that there's an institutional separation between the economy and other things, and it's ideological to continue to recreate this as if like talking about the economy is some, that's why it's called a critique of political economy, capital, Mm -hmm. you know? So... There's this way in which you just recreate all of the theoretical problems that you inherit when you insist that considering the material conditions of 
what you're writing don't matter. Also, just again, like, <laughs> to pick up this point, like, ima- imagine you read this entire book about socialist strategy, <laughs> and then you go to, like, a factory in, like, Sri Lanka, where, like, workers are, like, you know, getting absolutely destroyed by horrendous inhumane conditions, and they're trying to organize and get some fucking minor gains for themselves, and you go, hey, Reductionists. W- wait, don't, don't. <laughs> Don't make a claim about your interests here because we have to recognize that this is only a partial and contingent articulation and that you don't have any uh, essential relationship you, to... Are you about to use the pronoun I? Ooh, uh, that that, that sounds like a little bit of presence right there. Sounds like <laughs> so a you're priorism. Gonna, yeah, you're going to need to jettison that with a quickness. And so <laughs> can I also ask you all, I... um. I'm also, I you know, maybe it's because of my implicit love of Sartre, but you know, everyone you know, would rake him over the coals because Sartre's actually a fan of totalization. He thinks that's that's mm-hmm. quite helpful for mm-hmm. for theoretical thinking because you know it doesn't mean you're done. In fact, actually, totalization allows you to get to greater um, insights of concreteness. What is the relationship between, let's say, theoretical totalitarianism, if we're going to call it that, and actually existing political totalitarianism? Because sometimes <laughs> I feel like there's this you know, fast and loose way of playing as if it is theory that has led to you know, actually existing totalitarianisms that we have seen, which again, I feel like if you have a social theory, you have a way of explaining how totalitarianism happens, I mean, outside books and with actual people but here it's almost as if you know there's some one-to-one relationship between if theory is totalitarian that's going to necessarily have political effects like totalitarianism by the way i don't buy the idea that totalization means theoretical totalitarianism but i'm just trying to get clear what what is the, the the political problem here or what is the understanding of theory's relationship to political practice? Because mm-hmm. maybe that will help us get deeper into the book because they must have an understanding of what all of this is doing. It's supposed to affect political practice. I don't think it's only supposed to be a, a gotcha text for other high theorists. I mean, maybe mm. this is just a, a hot take, but I think that part of the problem with this book is that it moves to thinking of theory as itself as being somehow political so it create it carves out you know the last chapters like about intellectuals and workers you know so it carves out this place for the intellectual and I think that if theory has a relationship to political practice the uncharitable reading is that they start to think about discursive articulation as political practice and that's how we ended up with philosophy conferences full of people who like think they're fighting power or something. I mm-hmm. mean, this is really like European scholars from what they tell me come to European, come to American conferences and they're kind of like, what is going on here? Like everyone sort of thinks they're at a political meeting. And this is um, kind of a unique thing that they bring to the table because it's like if we just get the right theory and the ironic thing about this is that that is actually really authoritarian because it's kind of like as soon as you have a theoretical disagreement suddenly we have these like sharp divisions and I think you can see that resonate throughout of a lot of the political common sense that if you disagree with me about the definition of this or the theoretical uh, lane that I'm in, then suddenly you're like on, on, on a different side and no one told you who, who the side. Or you're problematic. You're problemat- yeah. So you're like one of the problematic, yeah. 
problematic people and no one told you exactly what the sides are, but it might be like fascism versus the rest of us. Like that, that's the, always the kind of implied framework mm-hmm. because they, they cite, you know, Karl Popper's critique from Plato to Marx, where he writes about the kind of, um, basically people who think in terms of totality. I mean, I haven't read all of these, all of the books, but these people who think in terms of totality, they lead to totalitarianism and they cite that and they, they just seem to think it makes sense as if, like, you know, an argument doesn't need to be supplemented for, so how do you get from A to B? And so I find it kind of remarkable that it's as if the space of theory becomes actually almost the concrete space of struggle mm-hmm. and war yes. in mm-hmm. this book. Yes, yes. And I and think that that's built into the ground floor of the conception, right? Because once you say that any political agent is a discursive effect... Well, luckily, we as good theoreticians are working in discourse, so we're already doing politics mm-hmm. and like the political struggle. Producing now is new subjects lost. too. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Always like our our interventions exist on the same plane as like a strike, right? And that I think, <laughs> and so, yeah, that I think has has led to some really unfortunate. Uh, unfortunate consequences particularly in the field of like professional philosophy and in continental philosophy i feel like since the 80s and this book i probably played a really big role in that there's been a clear kind of you know delimitation of uh or a distinction between what the kind of harmful concepts are what the kind of harmful theoretical orientations are and there's a real slippage between those concepts to like harm in the actual world Right, so you have this association of like tele- teleology with violence. Everything gets associated with violence, right? So teleology gets associated with violence. Um, even thinking mm-hmm. concretely about the practical world somehow is too close to, be, you know, you're on the verge of prescribing things in the practical world, and then you're back in the territory of violence. Um, you know, you're claiming to totalize and to understand the other, right? And then you're now you're taking mm-hmm. away otherness, right? Because you're, you know, so yeah, I, I feel like it, yeah, this has been one of the key texts in creating this kind of hierarchy of concepts, con, uh, sorry, hierarchy of concepts, you know, teleology is bad. And and I also think, I, I don't know, I was talking to um, another friend about this the other day, that I think that, the, you know, sometimes it's as if, you know, the concept of violence gets, you know, expanded theoretically to yeah. such a point yeah. that I'm like, well, what about, you know, people who aren't sure they're going to make rent? What about, you know, people getting shot by the police? Is is That cannot be on the same plane of mm-hmm. theory uh, assuming maybe even only a provisional teleology. Yes. Like that, that cannot be the same. And I'm just trying to understand, so what game are we actually playing here? And so I'm not trying to say that LeCloud Move don't think they're, they're doing something serious, but, you know, it, they're, they're not furnishing me with a the material of me trying to say so how do i actually come to understand you know the world as it stands you know how am i trying to you know understand you know these real concrete injustices that you know i almost it's almost withdrawn for me to understand that when you take away things like well i think there is a version of society that we at least provisionally want to struggle for or i actually think that this has you know at least a semi-common route why these things uh, are happening and but even i am in this like even trying to understand things is like framed as domination Right? And you can see this in Adorno, right? The concept which wants to, you know, subsume the object with no remainder, 
and uses the language of violence to talk about the way the you know the understanding relates to the world and he, you know he vilifies the schematism in Kant. Um, well, you know, drag Kant. That, okay, I get it. <laughs> you know, and the, this is our revolutionary work as well. Yes, of course. Mm-hmm. But of you course. know, oh, no he, doubt. <laughs> like so i mean i'm just trying to understand you know, so what is the next step from this and maybe we could talk about so what is democracy for oh them because i i i thought i i I'm, I'm on board with democracy at least i thought and then they dug into it and i'm like so where is the normative force so i'm gonna no kidding democracy. this is like a huge problem mm. i'm sorry um, Go ahead. well i was just gonna say that I want to take back slightly what I said earlier about this being like an American Academy thing. I was thinking about the context in which like continental philosophy becomes really popular in the U.S. And so I think it has like unique, uniquely American Academy specific characteristics where everyone thinks what they're doing is like political work and their scholarly work. But, you know, the Clown Move are also Europeans. And I think that what we're talking about in terms of just like why this kind of perspective was attractive is I think we have to remember that by the mid 1980s the new left had entered the academy and gotten PhDs and the decline of social struggle um, broadly like not just work I think it's weird that it's not just the working class movement like the labor movement that had been in decline, all social movements had been in decline by by this time. I think maybe it's a little bit, people mm-hmm. are a little bit more in denial about that mid-1980s while they're writing this, and probably the years while they're writing this book so we could give them the benefit of the doubt, like there was more, the new social movement still seemed new. Um, but what we're dealing with is a generation of people that enter the academy and they continue to think of themselves like they're politically relevant and revolutionaries. And so political activism actually in a very distorted way gets confined to university campuses, not exclusively, but the ideological production of the political left becomes encapsulated within college campuses and classrooms and professors can think of themselves as leaders. And so that's how you get this weird dynamic when you go to, again, conferences where they're like, how do we understand this? And how do we respond? And I'm like, you guys aren't doing anything. And, and no shade. Like, that's not what you, I'm not trying to tell you that you should be doing something you're not mm-hmm. doing. Yeah. I just, I'm like, yeah. you are not, in fact, doing this thing that you think you're doing. It's ideological um, production. And as far as what they think democracy is, this is a really important question to ask because democracy, I think, became like a very serious fetish in both continental European philosophy and in critical theory, where like democracy and it became about the procedures of democracy that would make it legitimate and justice became like tied to democracy. But and at the same time, there's all of this interest in civil society. And this is happening parallel to this whole argument in critical theory about the radical potential of civil society is this intermediate position between the economy and the state that could like revolutionize our political I mean, don't world. They, mm-hmm. Don't they seem to be using democracy just as a kind of stand in for pluralism? Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Like they, there's a pluralistic kind of hegemonic practice and then there's, you know, which is democratic. And then there's the authoritarian hegemonic practice, right. Which, you know, usually has a, is a, is class essentialist or something like that. Yeah. Well, again, like, because everything's, because everything's framed in terms of discourse and as discursive effects, democracy becomes a name for 
discursive disagreement. Mm-hmm. And so like the the image of democracy we're left with at the end of the book is just like like I said like arguing over what we mean by equality. Mm-hmm. And and disagreement is like de facto good um in this regard. And I guess I su- I suppose that like in as much as that means like not a priori shutting down conversation or debate or criticism like fine but that's also a completely hollow and formal mm-hmm. conception of democracy that that like is purely discursive and like i don't know i idealistic um, but you know is that effective democracy mm-hmm. you know and by by that i mean you know so it's you you have you're able to have these disagreements and all of that but you know how does this you know um uh hegemonic form of democracy have any power it doesn't. Where does this I, power I, I think that's what, uh, that kind of answers my question. I think because I, it seems to me that democracy is a kind of ethos for them. It's it's not really a okay. political project. It's a kind of way of relating to difference, a way of relating to okay. different kinds of struggle in a kind of mm. non-subsumptive way or something. But the question I wanted to ask was that, like, given that, you know, I think we're all down with a broadly pluralistic account of politics. I, I don't think any of us really aspires to be kind of, well, maybe Gil does, a kind of authoritarian, uh, since you know, you'll have philosopher kings. Thank but you. <laughs> but, <laughs> but they, cause they, so they want this kind of pluralistic democratic politics without a class core. Mm-hmm. And I think that if we do, and I have to, and I think I, you know, I do want to maintain, so I accept the pluralism, right? But do want to maintain a kind of class core, largely because I think the class element is the one part of all of these struggles that seems always the most difficult for existing power structures to subsume and assimilate, mm-hmm. right? You can. Mm-hmm. There's lots that that capital, you know, capital and the state knows what to do with liberal identity politics. It knows what to do with demands for inclusion or. Um, you know, it knows what to do with stuff like that. It knows how to subsume them. Mm-hmm. But the class core is always this unsubsumable kernel. So how do you, I don't know. So how, I mean, I guess at this point you have to leave behind this, the, you know, the project of this book in order to articulate how you have a genuinely pluralistic, democratic in this sense, you know, politics with a class core, but that isn't the reductionist you know, the kind of reductionist thing that not just in this book we've been mm-hmm. talking about, but in Stuart Hall and in, in you know, uh, well, to a lesser extent in Althusser, but. Well, another yeah. version, another, another side to this too is that like, you know, if we're talking about like totalization being bad, well, I mean, part of the reason why, like, I think we can't jettison this idea of a class core is because capitalism is totalizing. That's yeah. not just like, yeah. that's not just like a discourse effect. Mm-hmm. It's got this totalizing character. This is part of like the basic marxist analysis right that like it expands and does try to subsume everything in a way that i'm not sure other sorts of relations of domination automatically that's helpful because they they, move outward in all directions yeah that's helpful because they they seem to collapse capitalist society with just the with like the social just like the idea of society as such i mean what's great by the way what's what's the social oh the social is a detotalized field of partial okay. discursive practices <laughs> by which the attempt is made, although it is impossible to actually affect, uh, to produce society, which is an impossible object. Yeah, I don't really know what the social Any is. Any further questions? My brain, o- my brain only functions <laughs> on, on the ontic level. I only know about societies. I, I don't understand yes. the social. I can't understand ontological categories like the social. I don't know what the social is. I don't know what the political is. No, no idea. I know about politics. I don't know what the political means. Yeah. Okay, so listen, yeah. like I feel like one <laughs> uh-huh. 
aspect of this that I keep coming back to is how circular the whole thing becomes. So because Mm. they are obsessed with identity and they assume that the problem with Marxism is that it assumes a, like identity is tied to social ontology in some way and, and this way, and because they assume that the working class has an identity and therefore it's going to do all these things. Um, one really telling part of the book, aside from the Harry Braverman thing I went on about earlier, is the part where they do Eric Allenwright really dirty. So <laughs> Eric Allenwright yeah. expressly argues that they do a lot class of is not an identity. Class is an adjective right. mm-hmm. that describes a social process. That is the Marxian view. So if you insist you that. that Marx that Marxism says that it's a essential identity in the subject of history, so on the one hand this is a straw man, but on the other hand, you attacking that kind of you, you've lost sight of the whole point of the project. Some people probably did have a teleological view of history because it, their moment in history made that seem to make sense at the time. But Marxists have long since disbanded with that because we, yeah. like the rest of you, were like, hmm, socialism isn't inevitable. But this is just a truism, mm-hmm. you know, at this point. The argument for class politics isn't about fundamentally what identity workers have. It's like, can you imagine in this country, in the United States, a vision for racial justice that does not include a redistribution of wealth. Yes or no? I no, I can't. Can you imagine? No. I uh, want a ruling class that has thirty percent black. Oh, I'm I'm sensing we weren't all on the same page. Okay, we did not. Okay, say so that was things. not a discursive consensus. <laughs> no, but it's well, like that's democracy you, for you. That's antagonism. I'm just gonna like, keep going with it because like. Mm-hmm. You know, you can yeah. naysay all you want, but I'm just going to finish my my point now that I, I know where you really stand. But, <laughs> like, can you imagine gender justice without universal access to medical care or daycare mm-hmm. or free public education that's adequate? I just can't imagine those things. And it's, the argument it has never been that all of those things are the sufficient condition for justice of mm-hmm. any particular group. Mm-hmm. But get real, people. Like, what do you think is going to win these things? And then when you say, oh, we need to redistribute wealth, who's going to redistribute the wealth? Well, capitalists aren't going to do it. Who can make capitalists do it? You know, so like, there's this way in which like the whole thing just comes yeah. full circle because, mm-hmm. and then you end up being like, Hmm, is there an agent that could that could do this? And that you know, mm-hmm. which brings me to the you know I, I think I already know. Uh, we once joked about whenever we have a consensus, we'll call it the the new Chicago school position. Yep. You know, and I think I we're going to agree on this. But what I found very strange, especially the line about socialism is but one component for radical democracy. I don't understand how uh, basically you know socialism subsumed a radical democracy when it seems to me socialism would be a necessary condition for there to be an effective democracy. So how can how can people have lively disagreements, like articulable disagreements, if you know, they're going hungry? 
You know, how can they have lively disagreements where they really need to hash out? So where, what do we want to do when the social programs that support their life are being slashed? And so it makes it seem as if, you know, oh, okay, we'll say socialism is a component to radical democracy, but it makes it seem as if you can talk about democracy without the very things you were enumerating, Lillian. Mm-hmm. You know, so what are we talking about here? And I just want to you know, say one last thing, you know, how do you expect to win people over if you're not willing to talk about things that really would change their lives? I think that might be one of the lessons from this past election that we're starting to learn, which is mm-hmm. you're you're not just going to get, let's say, black people on board by just saying black things at them, if I can call it that, <laughs> you know, by just being like, yeah, but, you know, blackity black 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 right i don't know you know, biden, it, it, biden almost won la- almost won latinos with uh, playing despacito on his phone oh man. <laughs> oh man i mean it didn't work in miami dade but <laughs> did we all remember in 2016 when hillary clinton was like oh yeah i always have a bottle of hot oh sauce my god, my I forgot about god. and like yo i i love hot sauce and by the way for I those of you at home hot sauce. i am at least the one visibly black person on here and <laughs> at least i thought at least I do. <laughs> Y'all are in for a treat later episodes, and but it's just like spoiler. Who alert. do you who do you think these people yeah. are, and all of that? And so that's why I think it's so important to ask. Like you know, so do you really think you could you know envision justice without at least those necessary conditions? And again, to make it on the record again, no one's saying it would solve all the problems. No one's saying mm-hmm. well. Well, justice as a category does not appear in this book. It, there is no question oh, of justice at all, right? I mean, like, oh. at or least a I definition can't of I mean, domination, the, or like anything like that, or a, or a, or a definition oh. of class. Well, no, there's a lot oh, of like talk the, about class unity, but they never they, actually talk about what a class is. That's true. That's true. Well, you'd have to have a conception of a relation to the means and relations of production, but that's essentialist, so that's no exactly. good. Exactly. Then you're an economist. But by the end. But by the end of the book, though, to, to maybe to get to your point, Will, like, uh, like by the end of the book, they're saying things like, like the two categories that they do want to hold on to and invoke, which you know isn't justice, are uh, uh, freedom and equality, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, they're the ones that they're like, oh, this is what democracy is about in some form or fashion. I don't know how they're able to invoke these categories without falling prey precisely to like uh, reifying these discursive practices, which are supposed to be partial, that they've said we're not allowed to do. And so all of a sudden, like, you know, they start talking at some point about, like, uh, the they quote Hannah Arendt, my least favorite uh, person maybe ever, <laughs> uh, and say, like, oh, well, the American Revolution wasn't the important one. The French Revolution was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to which I'm always like, why not the Haitian Revolution? But whatever. Um, Gil's so politically black. I didn't uh, even bring it up. <laughs> but no, but no, but honestly, uh, but right. even even then though, like now we're just assuming, okay, we're gonna stick to the categories of the French Revolution, right? We've got our liberté and inegalité, mm-hmm. the fraternité, and it's like, wh- why? Well, why? Waving his why hands do we over accept there? these? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, why accept? Why accept these categories all of a sudden as providing the horizon for what democratic politics are supposed to be about when what we've said all along in this like deconstructive mm-hmm. critique is that no category can serve as like a foundational principle? Mm-hmm. I don't know how they're able to invoke these at that point. Whoa. It feels ad hoc. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And they might be libs. They might. 
Oh, they're libs. Yeah. By the way, well, actually, you know, and the way you know that that's true is because they uh, actually my, my least favorite part about this book in a certain sense is that like the the the, the, the violence that they do to the category of antagonism. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, I wanted to talk about that. Because I mean, and it's I think it's telling that in later works, like Chantal Mouffe is going to go on to talk not about antagonism but about agonism, mm-hmm. right? Where like the sort of oppositional um, or um, directly contradictory category or, uh, character of antagonism is evacuated entirely, and we just have this sort of agonistic play of differences. And I don't understand how they can talk about this as being antagonistic in this book. It's very strange. Can you explain the antagonism thing to me, actually? I mean, it seems to me like they want antagonism to almost be like an ontological feature of the social. It hurt to say that sentence, but (laughs) they they want to I saw the pain on your face. You look very unhappy saying that. (laughs) Um, But I think it means something like the inherent openness of the social or its inability to totalize itself or to close itself, right? And, you know, the idea that any kind of political opposition... Um, it can never, like, you know, they, they seem to want to you know, push back against Gramsci on this point, right? Where they say he does a really good job at opening up the field of political and social contestation by not making, you know, Gramsci was very attentive to regional differences and to differences in stages of the development of capitalism and, and whatnot. And all these different political actors that are, that constitute the kind of field of force relations, right? It seems, seems to kind of open up the terrain of different kind of antagonisms and political actors. But at the end, they say he ends up kind of coming back to a kind of binary confrontation between one class, which is hegemonic, and another class, still too much indexed to the economy, right? Too much, too proletarian for them mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, that, that are going to engage in a confrontation. So they, th- that seems to be what they're against. And what they want to do with the concept of antagonism is basically, like you said, Gil, make it non, not so antagonistic sounding. It's like right. a, it's a kind of play of, of, of pluralities of different social groups and um, and identities. And uh, so that, that's why I think you're right to, to point out the fact that Chantal Mouffe later does you know, invoke this language of agonism, which is a much more anodyne version of political conflict than, I think, antagonism. Like, I don't think they should be using the word, right? They shouldn't. No, they're not using it correctly. <laughs> this is crazy. Yeah. I feel like this didn't work out so well for us. Like, I really do think that this, <laughs> you know? It's a bit of understatement. Just like random antagonism among groups. Oh, I thought you meant like this episode of the podcast. <laughs> I was like, I think things are going quite well. <laughs> I mean, like this issue, like anta- like these kind of randomly situated an- antagonisms that don't have like a together logic. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like we people kind of think like that and it's not going super well politically. Yeah, honestly, what I got from antagonism is, is antagonism their way of just you know, trying to say that the social can never close in on itself, finally. Mm-hmm. You know, they use that language of suturing. Because honestly, right. th- those pages on antagonism, I was getting a little bit lost because it didn't look like what I thought antagonism was, mm-hmm. you know, which would be some form of conflict. It seemed like you know, it became... Well, it's, the- it's antagonism without enmity. Right. And they, they use the word once, right? But they say we don't mean something like social enmity, because that's obviously also totalitarian. No good. Okay. Yeah. yeah, no. Antagonism just, I think, comes for them to mean, because they say things like, okay, it can't mean contradiction. It can't mean right. real opposition. Yeah. So yeah. I think it just means difference. It, can't, it just mean, means difference. it can't mean a cop beating someone up. 
which I was like, which I was like, why not? I, <laughs> How is that yeah, not an instance of antagonism? Oh yeah, they did use that example. And yeah. I'm, Wait, and they, I yeah. they did. <laughs> <laughs> they did. They uh, yeah, used this they example did. when a cop beats someone up. That's just like when a rock falls down. That's just kind of real objects in the world materially smashing together. That's not. That's not antagonism. I want to be like, yeah, I'm sorry, but that's violence, yeah. by the way. Yeah, oh, definitely violence. That's violence. Yeah. Can I can I read a quote to Please. you all from read uh, kill. from a smarter person? Oh, thank you. Uh, the bourgeois relations of production are the last antagonistic form of the social process of production. Antagonistic not in the sense of individual antagonism, but of an antagonism that emanates from individuals' social conditions of existence. But the productive forces developing within bourgeois society also create the material conditions for a solution of this antagonism. That's a little... Little Karl Marx. <laughs> I was yeah, about right to say. I, I was going to guess I Engels. I, I know actually, that language. But. Yeah, it's a bit of an Engelsian flavor. But that's a concept of antagonism that I can make sense of because it has the, 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 this, this contradictory character that involves real opposition and also, in so doing, articulates the conditions for overcoming the real contradictions that capitalism produces. And when you evacuate it of that character, yeah, it just ends up meaning something like, I don't know, people think different stuff or fe like feel a different way. And I'm like, I, that's not I mean, like One thing that Chantal Mouffe does with the agonism stuff later, I'm glad you brought that up because that actually clarified for me one of the questions I had. It's like the argument is that politics will never go away. So like the totalitarianism of theory is to make it seem like there could be a closure to politics. You know, like we overcome class divisions okay. and therefore politics is no more. And of course, I've always wondered like why that is the conclusion. Of course, there would still be politics. It just wouldn't be the same kind of politics. But that's neither here mm -hmm. nor there. Mm -hmm. The argument is that politics is this ongoing antagonism. Everybody's just kind of sh shooting darts at each other, if you will, discursively. And there's this serious struggle that's always happening. And I just think to myself that there's this real difference between you're the one who's describing politics after the fall of class society. Like you're the one talking about politics <laughs> at the other side mm. of structural and, you know, like, so we get rid of structural injustice that we definitely do want to end definitively. And then we could just have <laughs> politics where we're like, just disagreeing with each other. Like, that sounds great. Libs. Yeah. <laughs> Libs. <laughs> Liberal brain. And again, the, the reason why I brought up you know, the, the difference between you know, contingency and ad hoc, um, as you all know, this, this spoke to me where at first it seems like they reject any talk of utopia, but at the very end, mm -hmm. they go, and you know, I'm quoting here, now without... Utopia, I guess it's uh, utopias and scare quotes. Without the possibility of negating an order beyond the point that we are able to threaten it, there's no possibility at all of the constitution of a radical imaginary, whether democratic or of any other type. And so at that point, I'm thinking, well, then you must be trying to put forward, you know, some different type of society <laughs> we'd like to replace this one with this one with and i'm all fine with invoking that but everything that we've had up until that point you have not provided the theoretical resources by which we mm -hmm. would articulate the notion of utopia which has yes. which makes the fatal error of making utopia this abstract imaginary thing which by the way i hope we do an episode on is not the only way of talking about utopia 
And right. so it, it, it even withdraws on the political force Snaps. that Utopia could have by simply saying, yeah, I mean, I guess we could imagine, you know, a different way of life. But, you know, you're telling us that isn't that totalitarianism? The idea right. of this, you know, this, you know, different closure. And so I was just mm-hmm. completely confused by it. It seemed like they were searching for the normative resources because it seemed by the end, well, if it's just all open plays of difference, then why would we make decisions or interventions one way or the other? Absolutely. Absolutely. I had that exact same, like, problem. Like, uh, yeah, I, I, I wondered at some point, like, Okay, great. So, you know, I'll buy this, that like the, the, the political uh, is this ongoing, it, it's a forever process. It'll never go away. The social is always this detotalized field. Uh, struggle so, never like, ends. Struggle never ends. Sure. Um, so like, I don't That's know, let's hard. just keep, let's just disagree about mm-hmm. stuff forever. And like, you know, why, why socialism and not, I don't know, more capitalism? I don't see any resources in their way of thinking for actually coming down on the side of socialism. Right. They've they've made it all so uh, relationally differential, uh, so completely untethered. To well, because they don't want to talk about materiality. They don't. And they so don't. I just don't understand how you can have a conception of socialism that is completely unmoored from materialism, from material, even just the idea of materiality. There is a piece by, that I think I've shared with you all in our chats at some point um uh by uh teresa ebert called untimely critiques for a red feminism which she writes in like 1995 in which she like reads like a ton of like post-structuralist continental philosophers uh who are like in this precise vein and she's like all i need to do to like totally rip your these arguments apart is just cite lenin like you all think that you are materialists but all you're doing is talking about like discursive forms and pretending that like because oh yes we've agreed that like discourses are material that like that's the end of the story and it's a very idealistic way of parsing all of these issues mm-hmm. so are we like pro socialism here me personally yeah um, I'm still open to being convinced one way or the other because well, well, yeah, Lufian Lufian <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I think we could have some more democracy about it first. So not um, a Chicago, yeah. so not, not the Chicago me. school consensus for socialism. Mm. No, I, not yet. We don't want you know, like, we don't want to foreclose the social just yet. Okay. Let's like let's like leave. I it would open love to close for the episode social. Four. <laughs> I'm trying to close the social in the form of fully automated space communism. <laughs> with, <laughs> <laughs> like okay. that's I I'd think love this to is the first time I've heard space the in there. Yeah, no, like, we're going it's not to enough space. for it to be earthbound. We're going to no, go to space we, and we're going to be communists, okay? The, the whole solar system will be communist. And there will be no debate about yeah, it. Yeah, talk about I'm totalizing. A, a totalizing essentialist, you know me. Okay. Dang, well, dang. that does it for us today. Um, thank you guys. <laughs> I'm going to pull that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> the totality. I don't want Last you to be word. giving our audience any answers. <laughs> Uh, strange messaging about space communism. New new episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Please like and subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil. If you like what we're doing, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash left of philosophy. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time. Take care, everyone.